Please take out your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 4. We continue this morning in our study through the Gospel of Luke. Today we find ourselves in chapter 4, verses 14 to 21. Now the Gospel of Luke, as you know, is a book about the life and ministry of Jesus. Uh, And this is our 18th sermon uh, in this Gospel. Uh, But interestingly, this is actually our first text that deals with Jesus' public ministry. Like the three plus chapters, right? We've covered uh, only two narratives in which Jesus is recorded as speaking. You've got the story from when he was 12 years old at the temple. And then you've got the temptation in the wilderness, which we talked about last Sunday. But neither of those are about his public ministry. Uh, His speaking to the crowds and his ministering to the multitudes and his performing signs. Uh, But the rest of the book is all about that. And so this narrative that we're going to cover today, which actually goes through verse 30, but we're going to split it up over two weeks, uh, it's like a segue into the rest of the book. And it's also a segue into the next major section of the book, uh, a section that starts here and goes through chapter 9, verse 50, uh, covering what we sometimes call the Galilean ministry, right? Jesus' public ministry in the region of Galilee, which is kind of the northern part of the land of Israel. But that doesn't necessarily mean that this story is the first thing that happened in that Galilean ministry. Let me explain. You see, one of the things that we need to remember as we go through the Gospel of Luke is that Luke doesn't always order his material chronologically. Like, first this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. Rather, it's what Luke himself calls an orderly account. For the purpose of Theophilus, having certainty and having assurance. And so sometimes, in order to make a certain point, or to emphasize a certain theme, uh, he's like a skilled storyteller, or like a a good movie director, Uh, sometimes Luke will organize and present narratives out of chronological order. And maybe the most obvious example of that is what we've already seen back in chapter 3. You'll remember our friend John the Baptist Uh, We're told in chapter 3, verse 19 and 20, that John was locked up in prison by Herod. But then in verse 21, we're told that Jesus was baptized, and he was baptized, of course, by John. Obviously, that is not in chronological order. Uh, John must have baptized Jesus before he was put in prison. But Luke presents it in that way, out of chronological order, so as to close the story of John the Baptist, like take him off the stage, so that our focus can be entirely on Jesus, and of course the beginning of his ministry is his baptism. Well here Luke seems to be up to his uh, old tricks once again, because if you read the other synoptic gospels, like Matthew and Mark, uh, which are tend to be much more chronologically ordered than Luke, uh, you'll notice that they have this event much later on. Matthew has this story in chapter 13, uh, and Mark has it in chapter 6 of his gospel. And while there's some debate as to whether this event in Luke 4 is the same event as what's going on in those accounts, I think there's just too many similarities uh, for these to be different stories, which means 
that Luke has intentionally brought this story out of chronological order to the very beginning of his presentation of Jesus' Galilean ministry. But now why would he do that? Like, what is the purpose of him doing that? Well, it seems like Luke is bringing this narrative up uh, to a prominent position because this is a story that, uh, especially when you consider the additional details that Luke adds in, this is a story that really highlights what Jesus' ministry is all about. Uh, Luke wants his readers to understand Jesus' mission like right up front uh, so that we would know from the very beginning uh, not only what Jesus came to do, but also, as we're going to talk about more next week, uh, the kind of responses that he would receive. All that to say, as careful readers of Luke's gospel, we need to pay particularly close attention here. Uh, Luke wants us to pay particularly close attention here. That's why he's put this story first. And it's because if we understand this story rightly— it's going to greatly help us in the chapters to come as we go through the rest of Jesus' Galilean ministry. It's going to give us the proper lens through which we're supposed to see everything that Jesus says and does. So what we're going to do now is I'm going to first read our verses, and I'm going to read the entire section all the way through verse 30. And then we're going to zero in specifically on our verses for this morning, 14 to 21, And we're going to talk about what the verses mean and what implications they have for our lives. And then next Sunday, Lord willing, we'll finish out this narrative by doing the same thing for verses 22 to 30. And so look along in your own Bibles as I read from Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. Hear the word of the Lord. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee— And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal thyself. Oh, what we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. 
and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Let's pray. Father, it is through this uh, Jesus of Nazareth that we come to you in prayer because we do believe that he is the fulfillment of all of your promises to us. We pray that you would increase our faith and increase our trust and increase our confidence in you and your word. As we study this passage this morning, we ask that you would give us eyes to see the glorious Christ, that we would leave this place praising him for who he is, And what he's done for sinners like us. We pray for those in this room who are still captives to their sin, captives to the devil. Pray that the Holy Spirit would use this text this morning as the means to grant them new life. Father, that they might be born again. That they might be freed from their bondage. And for all of us, Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit would work in our hearts in a unique and special way this morning. That you might be glorified. Amen. Let's start in verses 14 and 15. Uh, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Now, God the Holy Spirit, in his wisdom, has chosen to give us not one, not two, not three, but four separate accounts of the life of Jesus. And so in addition to Luke, Uh, We have the Gospels of Matthew and Mark and John. And we need to remember they're written by four different human authors for four different audiences with uh, four different styles and and four different emphases. But all of them were written under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit. And so there is, of course, a a unity and a harmony amongst the four Gospels. Uh, They never contradict each other. Uh, They always perfectly complement each other. And that's important to remember when we come to a passage like this, because the other gospel writers fill in some of what Luke has left out, so that we can kind of piece the puzzle together a little bit by looking at the other gospels. And so, for example, Matthew tells us in Matthew 4.12, this is right after Matthew's account of the temptation, now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And so we know from that verse that it wasn't until after John the Baptist had been arrested that Jesus began his Galilean ministry. Now Luke doesn't include that detail, of course, because he already told us all the way back in chapter 3 about the arrest of John the Baptist. But if Jesus' Galilean ministry begins after John the Baptist is arrested, well, that means that all of the material in the Gospel of John— that happens after Jesus' baptism and after his temptation, but before John the Baptist's arrest, that all must have happened in between Luke chapter 4, verse 13, and Luke chapter 4, verse 14. So, for example, uh, the wedding of Cana, where Jesus turned water into wine, uh, that first visit to the temple when he drove out the money changers, and, and that whole interaction with Nicodemus, he must be born again, 
sometimes all that's referred to as uh, Jesus' Judean ministry because it mostly took place in the southern region of Judea. Well, Luke leaves all of that out to focus more on Jesus' Galilean ministry. And so as he returns here to Galilee, right, where he's originally from, a word's been spreading about him, presumably right, these stories that John tells us about from his Judean ministry, uh, those stories are spreading. And so he goes around and he teaches in the synagogues of Galilee, and the word begins to spread even more. And so by the time... And remember, I'm making the argument that this Nazareth event that starts in verse 16 actually chronologically happened even later. By the time he goes back home to Nazareth, it's not just the things that he's done in Judea. It's also the things that he's done in Galilee. Like, he is very well known at this point for his teaching, for his miracles, for his ministry. And we get that sense if we look ahead to verse 23. The people say, what we have heard you did at Capernaum, uh, do here as well. Right? So everybody has heard about Jesus at this point. So verse 16, he goes to Nazareth, and he goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. A synagogue, right? we, we still see them today. A synagogue was a building, uh, however rudimentary, where Jews from a certain place would gather uh, to have worship. And they would gather throughout the week, but, but especially on the Sabbath day, right? They would have this worship service uh, in which they would pray and they would recite the Shema, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Uh, they would do a reading from the law. Uh, they would do a reading from the prophets. And then someone who was appointed beforehand would then preach a sermon from one of the readings. And so uh, you can think of it as being pretty similar to what we would do here in our corporate worship gatherings. And so Jesus, he's not only a well-known teacher at this point, but remember, he's also from Nazareth. Verse 16 reminds us of what we've known since chapter 2, that Nazareth is where he had been brought up. Uh, Like, I don't think it's a stretch to say that this was the very synagogue that Jesus himself attended when he was growing up. So all the people were like, oh yeah, we we, we held him in the nursery. Uh, We taught his children's class. We remember when he first learned how to read. And on this Sabbath day, Jesus gets up because he has been appointed as the preacher. And he's doing the reading from the prophets. He's handed the scroll of Isaiah, which all 66 chapters would have been on one scroll. And he unrolls it and he finds what we would call Isaiah chapter 61. Now look at Luke 4 verses 18 and 19, he reads these verses from the book of Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolls up the scroll and he gives it back to the attendant He sits down, right? Back then, teachers would uh, be seated in a chair of some sort. Everybody else would be at the feet of the teacher, right, on the floor. And Luke is just brilliant in how he presents this, right? You you can just, like, feel the tension in the synagogue, the the drama that's building up in the scene. Like, what is he going to say next? The, The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. 
Everybody's leaning in. Everybody's anticipating. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Some of you sitting there like, Pastor, why can't your sermons be that short? Uh, He probably said a lot more than that, right? He began to say to them implies that he had many more words to say. But on a more serious note, that one line from that sermon on that day is one of the most significant statements ever made by any man. Like we have seen in this gospel, right? In this very gospel, a lot of other people testify to Jesus, who he is and what he's come to do. Uh, We've heard Mary's Magnificat and Zechariah's Benedictus. Uh, We've heard from the multitude of the heavenly hosts. We've heard from Simeon. We've heard from Anna. We've heard from John the Baptist. But now this is Jesus himself declaring who he is and what he's come to do. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. But what does that mean? Uh, Like, what does it mean that Isaiah 61 has been fulfilled in their hearing? And why is it so noteworthy and so significant? Let's start at the beginning. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Now, that is a theme that we have seen over and over and over in this very gospel already. The Holy Spirit being upon Jesus. You remember it started at the baptism. Uh, That's when Jesus is publicly anointed by the Holy Spirit. Remember that he has always in his humanity been filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, Even his incarnation was brought about by the Holy Spirit. But at his baptism, there is this visible anointing. The Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And then we're told, look at chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. In our verses today, we continue with that same theme. Look at verse 14. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. And so Luke has repeatedly emphasized the role of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' ministry. As if to leave us with no doubt that this prophecy from Isaiah 61 really is being fulfilled in Jesus. Like, there's no doubt that the Spirit of the Lord is upon him, that he's been anointed by the Holy Spirit. Right? Luke, you've been telling us this over and over and over. But the significance of the Holy Spirit being upon him doesn't end there. Because if you think about it, there's a bunch of guys in the Old Testament that the Holy Spirit came upon, right, to set them apart for some task. Uh, whether it's Joshua or Gideon or David. But Jesus is not just another in that line. He's not identifying himself as just another guy whom the Spirit is upon. No, Jesus here is specifically identifying himself as the one whom Isaiah talks about the Spirit being upon. Specifically, the Messiah. Uh, Remember that Messiah is Hebrew for anointed one. And so he is claiming to be the spirit-anointed Messiah that Isaiah prophesied about. The spirit-anointed Messiah that Isaiah talks about in Isaiah chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. 
And that same spirit-anointed Messiah that Isaiah talks about in chapter 42, where he's specifically portrayed as the suffering servant. Uh, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. And so when we realize the context of the entire book of Isaiah, well, what Jesus says here, when he says that Isaiah 61 is talking about him, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me, he is declaring himself to be the spirit-anointed, suffering servant Messiah that Isaiah has prophesied about. And so now we begin to see the significance of this statement. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's who he is. He is the spirit-anointed Messiah from Isaiah. But now we ask, well, what's he come to do? And the answer is in the next five lines of that quotation from Isaiah. And so Jesus, through this reference, is going to give us five pictures five word pictures of our spiritual condition and how he then saves us from that hopeless state. So picture number one is poverty. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Good news, uh, that's a, a term that most of us are probably familiar with. It's the Greek word from which we get uh, evangelize, evangelism, uh, to preach good news, to bring good tidings. But what about the poor? Uh, Who is Jesus talking about there? Well, the poor there may include, of course, uh, those who are economically and financially poor. Uh, But good news to the poor isn't a statement about socioeconomics or or class structures or or fiscal policy as much as it is a spiritual metaphor. Now, some proponents of like liberation theology have taken statements like this and made them into strictly sociological statements. Uh, But clearly, as the next few lines about captivity and blindness show, uh, these are meant to be metaphorical and symbolic pictures. Uh, We need to remember that Jesus didn't come to be a social revolutionary who was going to topple the economic systems of the day. No, he's a savior who came to seek and save the lost. And so here, the poor, well, that's a picture of spiritual poverty. You remember what Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's those same people that he's talking about here, but those who are poor in spirit, those who recognize their spiritual need. Those who recognize that we have no righteousness of our own to bring to God. That we're sinners through and through who can do absolutely nothing in and of ourselves to please God. Like our very best works, our most honorable deeds, our purest of motives— are but filthy rags. Uh, That our sin has created such a chasm between us and a holy God that uh, we can never, in a million lifetimes, ever atone for our sins. We are hopelessly, helplessly poor because of our sin. But today, this scripture 
has been fulfilled in your hearing, that Jesus has come to proclaim good news to those poor. And the good news is that he, as the Spirit-anointed Messiah, he has come to save those who realize and recognize their spiritual bankruptcy and then turn to him. And he does this by taking upon himself our spiritual poverty, uh, by taking upon himself our sins and dying for those sins on the cross. And in exchange, he gives us his perfect righteous record. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. And so the Spirit-anointed Messiah of Isaiah, he invites each and every one of us who have realized our spiritual poverty to come to him freely. Isaiah 55, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, no spiritual currency, come, buy, and eat. So picture number one, Sin makes us poor, but Christ proclaims good news to the poor. Picture number two is captivity. Look at the next line. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. The word for captive in the Greek uh, literally means spear captive. Uh, So it's someone who's taken captive by a spear. And so picture like the others in Lost, right? Those guys in the woods that would come with the spears and take you captive, right? It's describing a prisoner of war. And that's exactly what we are before we're saved. What does Jesus say in John chapter 8? Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. We're slaves to sin, right? Paul picks up on the same theme in Romans chapter 6 when he talks about sin making us obey its passions, And the 2 Timothy 2.26 says that we've been captured by the devil to do his will. And so that's the picture we should have in our mind. We are slaves to sin. We're captives to the devil. But today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What scripture? That Jesus has come to proclaim liberty to the captives. That Christ has come to set people free from their bondage to sin and the devil. Now, interestingly, that word for liberty there, uh, as in proclaim liberty to the captives, uh, it's a Greek word that every other time it's used in the New Testament, the ESV will translate it forgiveness. And so literally, we could read that as proclaim forgiveness to the captives. And that makes all the sense in the world, right? Because if it's our sin that's enslaving us, if it's the devil that is making us his captives because of our sin, well, then it's only forgiveness for those sins that can set us free. Uh, Forgiveness of sins that, again, the Spirit-anointed Messiah from Isaiah has accomplished on our behalf by dying in our place. The suffering servant taking upon himself the sins of his people and suffering the wrath of God on our behalf. In John 8, 36, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Listen to how Paul brings this all together in Colossians chapter 1. 
Colossians 1, 13 and 14, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And so there we've, we're in this kingdom of darkness. We're captives there. But Jesus has freed us to be a part of the kingdom of the son. But how? Look at verse 14. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness, the liberty of sins. You see that it's through the forgiveness of our sins that captives to sin, like us, have been freed. And so we can sing with Wesley, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Right? We were captives, but then what happens in the gospel? My chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Now, picture number two, sin makes us captives. But Christ proclaims liberty. Look at picture number three. It's a picture of blindness. Recovering of sight to the blind. And this picture of spiritual blindness is closely related to the last picture of spiritual captivity because it's, at least in part, our spiritual captor himself who makes us spiritually blind. That's what it says in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Uh, in their case, referring to unsaved people, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Do so you realize uh, part of what prevents people from being saved is that God allows the devil to blind their minds so that they cannot see the glory of God in the gospel. You've probably experienced this yourself if you've ever shared the gospel with an unsaved person. You might present the gospel in the most clear way possible. But it means absolutely nothing. They're not understanding. They're not following. They're not hearing. Or perhaps you yourself have firsthand experience. You can recall a time when you yourself were unsaved and someone shared the gospel with you and it just went in through one ear and out the other. Or maybe this describes you right now. You're hearing from God's word about the glories of the gospel, the glories of salvation, and all you can think about is what you're going to do this afternoon. Sin blinds us, right? The devil blinds us so that we are unable to even see our need for a savior. But... This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing that Jesus has come to bring recovery of sight to the blind. And just two verses after that verse I read from 2 Corinthians chapter 4 about how the devil makes us blind. Well, here's verse 6. For God, who is greater than the God of this age, the God of this world, God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's a reference to Isaiah 9-2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. And so who is that verse referring to? Well, you guessed it. It's the Spirit-anointed Messiah of Isaiah, Jesus Christ. And so Jesus has come as the light of the world, 
of the light that shines into the darkness that those who were once blind could now see. And so we who were blind to the glory of God, we were blind to eternal things, we who were blind to spiritual matters, well, now we have eyes to see. Picture number three, sin makes us blind, but Christ gives us recovery of sight. Picture number four is that of oppression. Look at the next line, to set at liberty, that's the same word from before, those who are oppressed. Now, interestingly, and you can do this later, if you look in Isaiah 61.1, you're not going to find that line. Uh, this is actually a reference to Isaiah 58.6. And, and so it might be like Jesus' commentary on, on the previous line about the blind re- receiving sight. Or he might have cited that verse for uh, another reason entirely. We don't know. But either way, this is referring to the person who, because of their sin, because of the effects of their sin, uh, they're crushed and they're broken in pieces. They're, they're oppressed by the burden, uh, the weight of their sin. This is the picture of sin as the harsh, unrelenting, unforgiving taskmaster who really causes nothing but misery and sadness and hopelessness. And really all you have to do to understand this picture is just live long enough. Uh, to see the, the carnage and the destruction that your sin leaves behind. The relationships that it destroys, the people that it hurts, the trust that it tears down, the scars that it leaves, uh, the shame and, and the guilt and the condemnation. Our sin, our sin, our own sin is the single greatest oppressor of our souls. But today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What scripture that Jesus has come to set at liberty those who are oppressed? We have a a merciful Savior who is the lifter of our heads, who comforts the downcast, who invites all who are heavy laden to come to him for rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When Jesus takes upon himself our sin, when we believe that he has paid for our sin, he removes that unbearable burden that we've carried all our lives, and we're like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, Uh, The burden is loosed off our shoulders. It's cast into the depths of the sea. The burden of our heart rolls away. Picture number four, sin oppresses us. But Christ has come to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Which brings us to picture number five, because there's one more line. Look at verse 19. To proclaim the year... Of the Lord's favor. Now, this word picture of salvation, uh, the year of the Lord's favor, it's, it's almost like a summary uh, that kind of encapsulates uh, the other four. And it's referring back to something in the law 
one of those laws that maybe we've never really paid close attention to, but hopefully something that you'll never see in the same way again. Turn back to Leviticus chapter 25. Reading from verse 8. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpets, right? The shofar. On the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. That fiftieth year shall be a jubilee for you. So picture number five is the picture of jubilee. The jubilee, in the year of jubilee, according to the law of Moses, all slaves were set free. All debts were forgiven and erased. All lands were restored to their rightful owner. And so you see that. It's a picture of our salvation that brings together all the other pictures of the oppressed and the poor and the captives and announces to all of them forgiveness and liberty and freedom. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing that Jesus has come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, that he has come to proclaim jubilee. Back in Old Testament Israel, right, the jubilee... That's good news for the oppressed. Like when the shofar is blown, when you hear that sound, oh, that is a glorious sound to the ears of the down and out because it meant freedom and forgiveness and liberty. Well, now the fulfillment, uh, the realization of Jubilee has come. Uh, The one who has come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor He declares good news. That's a glorious sound, is it not? To the ears of all who are spiritually poor, captive, blind, and oppressed. Picture number five, Jesus is our jubilee. So let's put it all together, right? What is Jesus saying here? This first extended quotation from our Lord that we have in the Gospel of Luke Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing that the Spirit-anointed Messiah from Isaiah is here and he has come to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to bring recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And all of that is the fulfillment of the law of Jubilee. Jesus now proclaims the year of the Lord's favor to all who would come to him for salvation. Let me conclude with this exhortation. You see, in these word pictures, our poverty, our captivity, our blindness, our oppression, we see our desperate need for a savior. 
And in these same word pictures, as the one who brings good news to the poor, the one who brings freedom to the captives, the one who brings recovery of sight to the blind, and the one who brings liberty to the oppressed, the fulfillment of Jubilee, well, we see that Jesus is that Savior that we so desperately need. But here's the key. We absolutely cannot miss this. All people are poor, captive, blind, and oppressed. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But not all people understand and acknowledge their poverty, captivity, blindness, and oppression. And we're going to see an illustration of that next week as we see the hometown crowd in Nazareth reject Jesus. Uh, They not only refuse to see the hometown kid as their savior, but they also refuse to see themselves as the ones who need to be saved. Forgetting about the people of Nazareth, talk about them next week. What about us? What about you? I know we're a mixture here of uh, professing Christians and uh, those who would not profess to be Christians. Uh, some of you have been coming here for a very long time, and uh, perhaps for some of you, this is the very first Sunday that you have been with us. It really doesn't matter which of those categories you fall in. If you don't see yourself as spiritually poor, spiritually captive, spiritually blind, spiritually oppressed, then by your denial, you are proving the very thing that you deny. And even more than that, whether you realize it or not, what you are doing is you are rejecting Jesus. Because you've heard what he's come to do from his own lips. He's quoting Isaiah 61, and you're saying, that's great, but that's not for me. And so there is good news. The good news of Luke chapter 4 is that Jesus has come in perfect fulfillment of the prophecy from Isaiah 61 that Jesus is even today saving sinners who are poor and blind and captive, granting them forgiveness, righteousness through his substitutionary death. That today is the day of salvation. But friends, that good news is only good news for those who rightly see themselves as the poor and captive and blind and oppressed that Jesus is talking about. Uh, Today is the day of salvation only for those who realize their need for salvation. It's like what Jesus says to the church at Laodicea. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. What does Jesus tell these self-deceived people to do? I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see, basically, come to me. Those who see no need, Those of you who have justified yourselves in your hearts, who proclaim your own righteousness, well, for you, nothing but judgment awaits. That is the promise of the scriptures. 
but for those of you who will acknowledge your wretched state, who will realize your hopeless condition, and then who will run to the Spirit-anointed Messiah of Isaiah who has come to seek and save the lost like us. Well, the good news is that today is the day of salvation. That today you can have your sins forgiven in Christ. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Run to Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask for those in this room who do not see themselves as the poor, the oppressed, the blind, the captives that this passage so brilliantly describes. Father, we pray that you would, by the Holy Spirit, regenerate them, that they might see what is true about them, and that they might then run to Christ. And Father, we pray for those of us who are your people who have placed our faith in Christ. We pray that we would continue to see him as this glorious spirit-anointed Messiah who has indeed come to fulfill all of your promises to us, in whom alone we can trust for our salvation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.